I want to share a little bit this morning. Uh, I want to start with, um, with just a scripture from Galatians chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 19 to 21. Do feel free to, to look it up in, in your tablets. We've got it up at the top there too. That's great. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I just want to rerun that last sentence there and just open that up a little bit. I don't set aside the grace of God. In other words, I don't dismiss it. I don't ignore the grace of God. Why? Because if righteousness, that is being right before God, if that was attainable through law, then Christ died for no reason. Isn't that a powerful message this morning? I don't know if you've ever had one of those conversations. Uh, you know how it goes Monday morning, you've just arrived at work, and, uh, or maybe um, at school, college, university, or you've met one of the mums outside the school gate or your neighbour, and they say, how was your weekend? What did you do? And you say, well, yeah, a bit of shopping, a bit of this and that on Saturday, around the home, whatever. Sunday, actually, I went to church in the morning. It was great. Sun- went Sunday evening as well. There was a, a, a great worship service on. And they respond, oh, you, you, you go quite a lot then to church. And you say, yeah, yeah, I do. Actually, I, I go in the middle of the week too. We have a, a little meeting in somebody's house on a Wednesday. Oh, you're quite religious then. We're celebrating Easter right now. And if you Google what is Easter, you'll get some results come back that say it's a religious festival. Waypoint here as a charity, we are registered for religious activities. Jim would be known officially as a minister of religion. So what are we doing here today? Is this just a religious meeting, a religious service? When we baptize Amy and Susie later, are we baptizing them into a religion? Or is there something more than that? I find it quite interesting to note when you read scripture that in Jesus' time, he reserved some of his greatest criticism for the religious people of his time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Kind of a little bit of a clue there in the teachers of the law. You see, these were good people. And they obeyed all the rules. In fact, they made a lot of the rules, hundreds of them. And they expected everybody around them also to obey the rules. And yet Jesus still called them whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, all looking good. But inside like death, like a tomb. You see, they'd taken God's original law, the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people as a foundation for godly living that would help them to live right before him. And they had added hundreds of new laws. They added so many laws that they were in bondage to law. 
And they totally missed the point that their saviour was right in their midst. They even criticised Jesus when he healed people on the Sabbath. And they said, you're working, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. They criticised his disciples for picking some grain when they were hungry on the Sabbath. They said, you're working, you shouldn't be doing that. They totally missed the point of Jesus' presence in their midst because they were so focused on the law. I think, I do believe that instinctively we know Don't we? The law on its own doesn't really have the power to change the heart of mankind. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just become lawless, do what we like, and go out and ignore the law. But really, if we think about it, we know that the law on its own doesn't change a person's heart, does it? There are some lawyers, thankfully, only some, not all of them, that make a fortune out of studying the law in minute detail. They find all the loopholes in the law and uh, they make a case for people to get off the charges that have been leveled at them in court. You know, you know how it goes. The, the government decides this is a fair amount of tax to pay, to, to pay for all the services that we all enjoy. So we immediately think of a way that we can get out of paying that tax, right? Oh, just give us cash, we'll let you off the VAT. We employ clever accountants to, to find ways to get around putting our money in different places so that we don't have to pay what we owe. The council decides what's a good speed for us to drive down the road. I've got to be careful on this one, my wife's listening. They say 30 miles an hour is a safe speed, so we're immediately, get away with 33 probably. What is it the police say? 10% plus 2, 35, probably okay. See, if we depend on the law, then you have to keep making more laws to cover the loopholes that we find in the original laws. Our government every year makes more and more laws and usually just to cover those places where people are finding ways around it. Why is that? Well, the problem is that the heart of mankind is intrinsically sinful. Selfishness, we want to do things for ourselves, pride, anger, envy. And that sinful nature separates us from God, from a holy God. He cannot fellowship with sin. The law on its own doesn't have the power to change our heart. There's nothing that we can do. No amount of effort will save us. So what does God make of this? Does he care? My friend, I want to tell you this morning that he cares deeply about you as an individual. Every single one of you here this morning. You see, he created you with a purpose. He created you for relationship. He created you wanting to pour out his blessings in your life and walk with you through your life. He created you with a desire to spend eternity with you in heaven. And this is where God's grace and his love comes into the story. This is where the true meaning of Easter comes into the story. On Friday, a couple of days ago, Good Friday, We had a lovely service here, thank you Graham if you're here somewhere, um, for leading us so sensitively and beautifully in that lovely 
time of remembering what Christ had done for us on the cross. This was the greatest act of love ever demonstrated to mankind. It does sadden me sometimes that I get the feeling sometimes people treat Christ's crucifixion a little bit like someone's given us a box of chocolates or a bunch of flowers. It's kind of like, oh, that's really kind. Thank you. You really didn't need to, but, but thank you anyway. I don't know if you ever sort of feel casual about what he did on the cross. But his sacrifice on the cross was much, much more than that. I want to just read a little bit, well, semi-read and, and open up a little bit of what was going on when Jesus went to the cross for us. In Mark chapter 15, verse 15 onwards, we, we, we read there what, what's been happening is that Pilate, the, the, the person who was in charge at that time, he'd been having a, a bit of a to and a fro with, with the crowd, with the, with the people. They wanted Jesus dead. In fact, they wanted him dead so much they, want, they were shouting out for Barabbas, a common thief, a common criminal, to be released instead of Jesus. And Pilate, in the end, he gives up. And so we see that Pilate gave the crowd what they wanted. He set Barabbas free and he, he turned Jesus over to them for a whipping, for crucifixion. Friends, that whipping that Jesus had wasn't some soft whipping that was going to sting a little bit. They used to put sharp pieces of bone in the ends of the tails of those whips to rip the flesh apart. I'm sorry if this gets graphic, but this was gritty. This was real. They were trying to break Jesus physically. The soldiers took Jesus into the palace and they called together the whole brigade of soldiers. And they clothed him in, in purple robes. That signifies royalty. And they put a crown on his head. But this was no royal crown. This was a crown that was plaited from thorns. Designed to cause the maximum discomfort and humiliation to Jesus. And they began their mockery. Hail, king of the Jews. They banged on his head with a club. Spat on him. And they knelt down in mock worship. And after they'd had their fun, they took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes back on him. And then they marched him out to nail him to the cross, to crucify him. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they did that and the charge was over his head, the king of the Jews. Along with him they crucified two criminals, one to his right and the other to his left. And people passing along the road were jeering, shaking their heads in mock lament. You bragged that you could tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. So come on, show us what you can do now. Save yourself. If you're really God, if you're really God's son, come down from that cross. The high priests, along with the religious leaders, 
We're right there mixing it up with the rest of them. Having a great time poking fun at him. He saved others, look, but he can't save himself. Messiah, is he? King of Israel. Then let him climb down from that cross. We'll all become believers then. Even the men crucified alongside him mocked him. I wonder, do you see what was really happening there? You see, Jesus, the Son of God, the pure, perfect, holy Son of God, he'd already come from the glory and the majesty of heaven and come to earth as a man to live among us, to set an example. But then he had come for this ultimate purpose where he would be humiliated to the point where he was lower than the worst of the criminals. Where he would be shamed, where he would be mocked, where he would be isolated. You know, we, we read that he was isolated not just in that mental way but spiritually as well. Because he cried out to his father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That question wasn't because Jesus didn't know why he'd forsaken him. Jesus knew full well. Because that was the only way, that separation from his father, God, was the only way that the price for our sin could be paid. Later on, in Scripture, in, in the book of Acts, we read when, when Peter was, was out preaching to, um, preaching to the crowds again. And he was saying to them, you realize that man that you crucified, that Jesus that you crucified, he was the Son of God. He was the one that had come to save you. And they began to ask, realizing what they had done, they began to ask, what, was, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent of your sin. And be baptized. And it's the same for us as, as we repent of our sin. And, and, and these two ladies so beautifully shared the journey that they've been on with Christ. And, and, and the change in their life as they've come into relationship with him. You see, as we repent of our sin and as we, uh, as we welcome Jesus into our lives, our life is turned around. Suddenly, everything changes Suddenly everything is different. Our whole motivation for, uh, for following Christ and obeying his ways. Suddenly our motivation is different. I love the illustration of, of Prince George. I used this before, but I'm going to use it again. Little Prince George. He's a sweet little fella, isn't he? He's going to have a part, I think, in the coronation uh, coming up. And uh, I... I just love this story that he was in school one day and uh, and his mates were playing up a bit and and he said you need to be careful you know because one day my dad's going to be king (laughs) isn't that that a great line to be able to say to people watch out my dad's going to be king one day but I can guarantee you as a father I can guarantee you that Prince George has a different relationship than than I have with Prince William. I don't have any relationship with Prince William. I don't, apart from what I see on the news, I don't know him. But I can guarantee you that Prince George can climb up into his daddy's arms and have a hug when he needs it. 
I can guarantee you that Prince George can interrupt his daddy and say, Daddy, I need you. I need your help. I'm struggling with something. And his daddy will give attention to him. I can guarantee you that the, the, the Prince George can get his dad's attention when nobody else can. Why? Because he's his son. Because he's family. And it's the same with my kids. My, even though they've grown up and we've got grandkids now. If they're in need, I'm there. I'm right there. Why? Because they're sons. They're daughters. And that's what we are as we take that step of entering into relationship with Jesus Christ. As we receive that forgiveness that he purchased for us on the cross, everything changes. And we have that ability to, to then come to Almighty God, our Creator God. But now as our Heavenly Father, Abba Father, the Bible describes it. That's like Daddy. It's that intimate. It's that close. But the Easter story doesn't end there, does it? You see, today is Easter Sunday. We've already mentioned many times we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. He's no longer in the tomb. Mary came, Peter came, others came, and they looked and, and they couldn't see him. They couldn't believe what they were seeing, that the grave clothes were still there, but he was gone. He has risen bit by bit. They began to realize all the stuff that he had told them previously was coming true, that he's arisen Christ. He's alive today. We worship a living God. If we want to call what we're doing here religion, there is no other religion. There is no other faith that can claim the same. That we worship a living God who's alive and living in us. But there's still more. See, when Jesus was coming to the end of his time here on this earth, he said something else to his disciples. He promised to them the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the active, the, the, the living part of God. Equal to but different from the other persons that form the, the, the Holy Trinity. We, know, we all know we can easily rattle off, can't we, the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We've got God the Father, our Creator, Almighty God, seated on the throne. Now our Heavenly Father, Abba Father, who we can come into relationship with. We've got God the Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the resurrected one who said, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. He's the one that we choose to follow. He's the one whose teaching we choose to follow. And then we've got God the Holy Spirit who lives in us as disciples of Christ. And what does he bring? Well, Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he said to his disciples, when the Spirit comes on you, you will receive power. and You will be my witnesses. He's, descri he's described as well as the comforter, a helper. He brings truth, he brings hope. He teaches us, enables us to be his witnesses. He brings freedom, regeneration and renewal. He brings wisdom and understanding. Wow. Never mind religion. Who wants religion or religious activity when we've got this, when this is on offer?
Who wants to follow a religion when this is what Christ is calling us to? So we come to the other big part of, of what we're here for this morning. And that is the baptism. In a few minutes, Amy and Susie, uh, they're going to go over the other side there uh, where we got our baptismal pool. And um, we're going to dunk them. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, this is, this is an exciting time. I, you know what? I think there's nothing more exciting than, than hearing testimony of what God has done in somebody's life. But then also this, this baptism thing, this is powerful. And if you're a visitor here today or you're, this is a bit new to you, just, want, just for clarity, I want to say this is not the same as infant baptism where they sprinkle a bit of water on a baby. In that instance, the baby hasn't got a clue what's happening, have they? Um, but Susie and, and Amy, they know. They know what they're in for. They know, well, kind of. Um, They've made a conscious decision that they want to make this public declaration. And they're going to be fully immersed. And just for clarity, that's not because our leadership here have some kind of morbid fascination with half-drowning people. But there's real significance to, to this full immersion. As they go through with this baptism, this is a public declaration that they're identifying with the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As they go under the water, they identify with his death and his time in the grave. And just for authenticity, you know, he was in the grave for three days. So, well, or should we bring you up a bit sooner? Okay. But as, as they're doing that, they're making a declaration that they're dying to the old self, the sinful self, the selfish self. They're saying, I, I, I want to be finished with that life and I want to begin a new one. And then as they come back up out of the water, they're identifying with Christ's resurrection. How exciting. They're, they're identifying the Declaring that they're rising to new life, new birth. The Bible describes it as being born again. You've heard that phrase probably sometimes we hear of somebody that's become a born again Christian. The Bible uses that phrase born again because it is a new life. The life as God intended for us. I know you've already started that journey, but this is a declaration that you're, you're dying to that old self and you're starting that new life. A new relationship with him empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think this is one of the most exciting things that can happen in church life. And I know we've already um, expressed our joy and, uh, and that at hearing their testimonies, but I hope... Amy and, and Susie, when you go through that baptism, as you're coming back up out of that water, I want to encourage you, savor that moment. When you look back on it in, in weeks and months to come, in years to come, remember, remind yourselves, I'm, I'm a child of God, but I've risen again in, in Christ. I'm a, I'm a new creation. I'm born again 
when things get tough and you maybe got some things that you're working through that cause you challenge in your mind about who you are and, uh, and, and what you're feeling and experiencing, remind yourselves you're a new creation in Christ. You're in relationship with him. You're walking with him. And church, I want to encourage you, let's, let's celebrate this. Let's rejoice. And I remember reading a few years back, um, I was reading up on revivals more than 100 years ago in, in Wales. Some incredible stuff was happening. And I remember reading this article, which was basically a news, news reporter who had attended one of the meetings uh, at this revival. And, and he, um, he was kind of writing in quite a judgmental way, clearly not a Christian himself. And, and he's watching everything as it unfolds in this meeting. And basically the meeting consisted of people doing what Amy and Susie had just done and giving up, standing up, giving their testimonies of what God had done in their lives and the change that had come. And people were getting excited about it and they began to stand up and, and applaud and shout and cheer, a little bit like we were earlier. But it got even more raucous than that. And some then began to stand up on the pews, you know, the long wooden benches that, that, that would be popular back then. And they began to stand up on the pews and, and get excited and they're shouting and cheering and applauding because these stories are so fantastic. And then they overbalanced and a whole group of them fell on the floor. And this reporter is writing in a way of how terrible, you know, how, how undignified that they're behaving in such a way. And I can imagine sort of just over 100 years ago how that would have been quite a big thing. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, wow, we need a bit of that in church, don't we? Amen. You know, a bit of excitement a life changed, a life transformed. This is the most exciting thing that can happen for any of us when we meet with the risen Christ, when we enter into that relationship which is transforming.